From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. Welcome to Stand Up For The Truth for June the 13th. So glad you could join us for the podcast. My name is Mary Danielson, and it's News and Commentary Day. So I'm going to be taking on a variety of subjects because there are multiple stories of interest to the believer right now. It's difficult to sort headlines by importance because it's inevitable that things will be left out and left over. And you can't reheat the leftovers because tomorrow there will be more fresh headlines that need attention. So I do throw out a lot of leftovers and waste a lot of news, but that's the dizzying pace of the information age. Our scripture passage today is Psalm 139, 1-6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Let's pray. Lord, remind us today, as we go about our lives, that you are our sufficiency, our advocate, our high priest, who lives to intercede on our behalf. Your word tells us you go before us in everything and are acquainted with all of our ways, and how blessed we are as a people to know that you have your hand on us, and thank you that your ways are far above ours. Help us to lean on not on our own understanding We ask that you walk among us today. We are the sheep of your pasture. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Psalm 139 is a favorite of mine, and I've heard that expressed uh, by others too, because it tells me my God is big enough to handle anything that comes my way. Further down in that psalm is verses 17 and 18, and they say, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more than the number of the more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And I've thought about these two verses for a long time. A number of years ago, I I sought to understand as best as this mortal can about how God's being outside of time can translate into his endless thoughts towards us. I mean, there is no shallow end in the scriptural pool as it unfolds the nature of God before us so we can find comfort and encouragement to carry on. Um, This is kind of what I ran across as I was pondering this. Uh, Let me know what you think about this and uh, concerning his endless thoughts towards us. Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write this in my novel. Mary laid down her work. The next moment there came a knock on her door. Mary lives in the time domain of the story that I am writing about her. She did one thing, and then the next thing took place, and to the reader it's a smooth-flowing series of events. Now, she cannot get out of that time domain. I put her there, and she's a limited creature bound by my novel, my story's universe and its laws. But I, who am Mary's creator, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second half, I might sit down and think about Mary for three hours or so, or however long I want to. I can think about her as if she were the only character in the book for as long as I want because I have all the time in the world to do that. 
but the time I spent thinking about her doesn't appear in my book. I wrote half the sentence, and I got back to finishing it much later. Days, weeks, months, millennia, it doesn't matter. But anyone reading about Mary would never know that. In the same way, God has infinite attention to spare each of us. He's not bound by time, and this is borne out in Scripture, as it says his thoughts towards us are as the sands of the sea. So, and here's a side thought on that. If you think Bible prophecy is the imaginings of created humans, let me ask you this. Is the God, author of the universe, so limited he's unable to communicate his plans with lowly humanity? If he wishes to tell us his creation, tell his creation of his plans beforehand in a manner that they can understand, who can stay his hand? The very God who made the dirt under our feet thinks about us. All our days are written in a book. The hairs of our heads are numbered, etc., etc. If you get nothing else out of this podcast today, take that with you and share it with someone who needs to hear it. All right, let's look at some headlines. Rick Warren has a new book. It is entitled Created to Dream, The Six Phases God Uses to Grow Your Faith. Now, why should we care about this new book? Well, I'm going to explain why we should care about it. But the first thing that comes to my mind um, when he says there are six phases that God uses to grow our faith is, the Bible says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by dreaming. So what are we going to find when we look at this latest work by Rick Warren? Well, by way of summary, he was and is the founding pastor of Saddleback Church. I think everyone listening knows that. One of the largest churches in the world with campuses in the U.S. and around the globe. He is the author of The Purpose Driven Life, one of the best-selling nonfiction books in all of publishing history. It's been translated into 137 languages, sold more than 50 million copies in multiple formats. Now that's some phenomenal influence, right? And a lot of time, all the time that people spent ingesting what it has to offer, that's a lot of hours too. And I think a lot has already been said since the late 90s about him and his theology. So what we're left with now is uh, really just summarizing and analyzing its place in church culture and history. In other words, hindsight. Now, the book may have had a shelf life per se, but its content and influence has become stitched into the fabric of the church in these times. Now, what do I mean by that? The book changed the church at large. I don't think that's an overstatement at all. It wasn't as reflective of the seeker movement, which started out as a program to take the temperature of the unsaved, see what they wanted in a church, and build around that. Not what scripture says about church or what a pastor would view as the definition of a church, but what unsaved people want in a church. Okay, so full stop. God has given the church pastors and teachers and he has called and equipped them. And I never understood why the evangelical church would basically go outside of God's parameters for the assembly of the saved and ask the unsaved how to do church. Now, wouldn't that sort of be like taking a survey to see how your doctor should treat your cancer or how your lawyer should go about acquitting you for a felony? I said to my attorney, hey, I asked some random people how you should argue my case, and this is what they said you should do. Now, that may not be an apple and apples, uh, apple for apple comparison, but playing loosely with God's church and what it should look like seems to invite a lot of mischief, right? Because what's next? Well, Watering down the gospel so you don't offend the unbelievers in your midst. Not preaching on sin, hell, prophecy, or judgment for the same reasons. So it is like that. And here we are. Not every church, of course. There are good churches out there, so don't get me wrong on that. 
But this is how it started. The church growth movement and its cousin, the seeker movement, started when demographic experts posed a somewhat ominous challenge to the church. Either reinvent the church to make it more appealing, or we will lose the next generation for Christ. Well, at last I heard the spirit works in one heart at a time in any generation, but the fact is, the seeker way of doing church with its trappings came about over what a particular generation wanted in a church, like I said. And thanks to mass marketing, it became just another export, complete with its own musical style, artistic design, and spreading like crazy through blogs and how-to books, um, music, doctrineless music often, and celebrities. Now, this gave birth actually to the emergent church, which was not some organic bottom-up movement that just happened, but it was actually came about by a corporate mindset that raised up leaders, authors, and conference speakers, kind of at a frenzied pace, it seemed like, for a while there, and it made uh, some people rather wealthy in the process. So for those who have spoken out about the Rick Warrens and the Bill Hybels, it's for these reasons, knowing that when the church stops teaching the Bible and picks up a bestseller to grow the flock, it cannot end well. It, it creates a denomination via the back door, in which uh, Warren's ideas about church are now your pastor's ideas about church. And now you have, technically, you have a different pastor. And I don't think that's an overstatement. Uh, if the problems in the church stem from a lack of bestsellers in the pulpit, then we are farther gone when we than we think. So anyway, I'm going to get a little bit to this new book so you can see what we're talking about. It's really sort of a rehash of the one that started it all. But instead of the word purpose, he uses the word dream. And he says, we are created to dream. Dreaming develops our faith. God gives us an imagination so we can dream and create our world. God gives God dreams big dreams. And then he goes on to describe a sort of a vague connection between dreaming and faith. So instead of faith coming coming by hearing, as I read earlier, his gospel says faith comes by dreaming. And as I'm looking over the book, I'm thinking it might as well be written in Russian because he isn't really using any biblical vocabulary throughout that I even understand. So we need to figure out God's dream for us, or God's purpose. It's really the same song, second verse. Uh, in Purpose Driven, he tells us that God has a purpose for us that cannot be thwarted. We just need to figure out what it is. But then I would say, why bother? Because it's been in motion our whole lives, so it's it's an inevitable thing. It's It's not resistible. But here are the six phases. Phase one, dream. God builds our faith when we dream. Uh, he doesn't define waking or sleeping. He says nothing happens until we dream. Phase two, decision. Put your dream into action. Phase three, delays. There will be a waiting period before your dream is realized, so be patient while he works in us. Phase four, difficulties. Trouble ensue. Troubles ensue when we wait for our dream to line up with God's dream. But there's another phase. Phase five, dead ends. Since God can raise the dead, he can breathe life into any one of your problems marriage, career, or a dumpster fire of bad decisions. Um, it's really nothing but psychology disguised as Christianity. And finally, phase six is deliverance. God delivers eventually, and your dream will be realized. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that is a, uh, a book like this is inevitable following the initial um, blockbuster. There's a shallow end here, for sure. But I feel that it's really bewitched Christianity and shipwrecked the faith of many. Whether or not it becomes blockbuster number two remains to be seen, but if it does, I don't think anyone would be surprised. And speaking of dumpster fires, the book really is one. So that's a quick summary. Um, I would not recommend, obviously, this latest self-help book. And I'll throw in this, Mary Danielson. Yes. 
Uh, I, I don't see any reason for mature Christians to buy any books from Rick Warren. <laughs> this, uh, is, I'll throw that in there. But uh, is there, you know, some people say, uh, eat the meat, throw out the bones. Anything good in there at all? <laughs> you know how yeah. they say that? You know, yeah. they say, uh, uh, eat the meat, throw out the bones. And I just, there's no, just no reason to go through that. So I'll throw right. Well, and, I, and what my thoughts were, because the influence was so great, I mean, that's, you know, 50 There's million purpose copies. purpose life. You can see them in so many pastors' offices on the bookshelf. Yes. Yes. A lot, a lot of, and it's just like I said, there's just been a lot of influence there. A lot, a lot more people bought it and read it and passed it around and taught it than I ever would have expected. And that's the scary part for me because I didn't really see. Like you said, see there's been Bible studies. Yeah. Bible studies. Yeah. People oh, oh, I'm sorry, air quotes, Bible studies. But yeah. they really weren't. They're just uh, workbook studies. Right, right. But they took the place of um, right. teaching. Bible study. Of the, like, yes. uh, like the uh, Shack right. movie. Remember the Shack Bible, quote, unquote, era, uh, Bible studies and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I'll just uh, wrap that up by saying there's, if somebody was to call up and say, is there any books by Rick Warren you could recommend? None. No. no. As a ministry here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that's the latest coming from him. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit to jump into some headlines. And we have discussed AI and its dangers, but it continues to be a developing story. I don't see that ending. Uh, this headline is a little disturbing. I think it sounds some warning bells because it really could affect any one of us. And this is AI turbocharging $2.6 billion imposter scams by cloning children's voices. And calling with fake emergencies. Okay. Um, artificial intelligence is now turbocharging a multi-billion dollar global criminal scheme known as the imposter scam. The initial version of the scheme happens when scammers call or send text messages to unsuspecting people pretending to be someone they know who has a f- new phone number and a financial emergency. But now... With the help of AI, scammers are cloning the actual voices of friends, family members, and even children, according to a new McAfee uh, Cybersecurity Artificial Intelligence report. Using three seconds of someone's recorded voice, McAfee says AI can accurately replicate anyone's voice and begin placing calls to unsuspecting victims. McAfee cites the case of an Arizona mom who told the New York Post that scammers cloned her teenage daughter's voice, demanding one million in ransom for her release. McAfee recommends people set a code word with kids, family members, or trusted close friends that only they know and make a plan to always ask for it if they call, text, or email for help. The the Federal Trade Commission has outlined its own set of measures people can take if they believe a scammer may be on the line. Number one, resist the pressure to send money immediately. So don't react emotionally. Hang up. Then call or message the family member or friend who supposedly contacted you. Call them at a phone number you know is right, not the one someone just used to contact you. Check if they're really in trouble. Call someone else in your family or circle of friends, even if the caller said to keep it a secret. Do that especially if you can't reach the friend or family member who's supposed to be in trouble. A trusted person can help you figure out where the story is true. And this is, you know, it's just, again, a lot of mischief here. And it's not just the elderly who will be caught in this trap. Uh, several years ago, uh, I picked up a call where I work uh, at church from someone claiming to be the pastor's uncle, that he was stuck in London. He didn't have any money, and it sounded just like him. I know this gentleman, but it wasn't, and it was very, very strange and surprisingly advanced AI, and this was probably eight years ago. So now it's being ramped up, and this could affect any of us. So it's kind of a public service warning here for everybody out there to be careful 
because they can clone your children's voice. According to McAfee, 25% of adults surveyed globally have experienced an AI voice scam. That's a lot. 25% of adults globally? One in 10 say they've been targeted personally, and 15% say someone they know has been targeted. So be vigilant. All right. Um, Secondly here, there's a UN Summit of the Future. And it's going to set the stage for a new global order in 2024. They wanted to have it this year, but it's being put off for whatever reason. A research director at the Heartland Institute and New York Times bestselling author on Independence Day unleashed a warning to Americans that they may soon be losing their independence. Yeah, we're well on our way. Justin Haskins has written at The Federalist about a series of proposals to be considered at the U.N. next year, only weeks before the 2024 presidential election. One especially has grabbed his attention, one regarding emergencies. The proposal might be the biggest attempted power grab in the history of the U.N. Now, this is not the who thing that we've been talking about. This is different. If approved, the U.S. as we know it could cease to exist, he wrote. It is at the summit of the future being planned by the international bureaucrats who make up the U.N. that member nations are expected to adopt a pact for the future. The agreement will solidify... Numerous policy reforms offered by the U.N., although there are numerous radical proposals included in the agenda, perhaps none are more important than the U.N. plan for a new emergency platform, a stunning proposal to give the U.N. significant powers in the event of future global shocks, such as another worldwide pandemic, he explained. Known details of the scheme, he said, include a plan for standing authority of the U.N. to convene and operationalize automatically an emergency platform. Once triggered, the platform would give the UN the ability to actively promote and drive an international response that places the principles of equity and solidarity, of course, at the center of its work. The UN would bring together the stakeholders of the world, including academics, governments, private sector actors, international financial institutions, to ensure there is a unified global response to the crisis. That authority would include ensuring all participating actors make commitments that can contribute meaningfully to the response. In other words, the UN would not, would be given unprecedented authority over public and private sectors of huge swaths of the world, all in the name of battling a yet unknown crisis. The strategy by the international power brokers at the UN would let the emergency run on as long as they want. And the justifications for the power grab would include climatic events, pandemics, digital disruptions, and quote-unquote unforeseen events like the rapture. So (laughs) the WHO is working on their uh, health response, and I mean, there's just no end to this sort of thing. Next, I want to go to an article by Hal Lindsey, and this is called Russian Roulette. And it's about Putin and... um, I don't know who knows what, but this is very interesting. He says, since August 6, 1947, the day the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, thoughtful people have dreaded the day when such weapons would fall under the control of a mad or desperate man. That day has come. Vladimir Putin controls the largest arsenal of nuclear weapons on Earth, and he exhibits increasingly irrational behavior, maybe because his desperation of his desperation over the war in Ukraine. When he took power in Russia, he was a cunning man, but in full control of his country and his faculties. Today he is paranoid, physically ill, 
and has been humiliated by a stunning series of battlefield defeats in Ukraine. The ground beneath his feet is shifting. Official Russian government photos show Putin consulting with his closest associates as if they were lepers who might be carrying knives. He doesn't make them sit on the other side of a room like he did during COVID, but he still puts an unnatural distance between himself and others. Once famously vigorous, his face is now swollen and pallid. His hands shake. Persistent rumors coming out of the intelligence community say he is undergoing chemotherapy. And I had heard that as well. There are also credible rumors from multiple sources that he uses body doubles. When Russia's war against Ukraine started, military experts predicted a Russian victory in a matter of days. It's been 17 months and the war goes on. Putin's troops have been revealed as unmotivated, poorly trained, and led by ineffective, unwise generals. Russia's most celebrated military campaigns of the past started as defensive actions. Russian warriors defended their homeland against the armies of Hitler and Napoleon. But despite Mr. Putin's claims, the Russian war on Ukraine has had nothing to do with defending the motherland, but it's been a war of pure aggression against an undermanned but highly motivated opponent. With great fanfare in 2018, Putin announced deployment of a hypersonic missile. He proudly claimed that it could overcome any existing air defense system. But on May 4th of this year, Ukrainians used a U.S.-made Patriot battery to shoot down a Kinzhal missile. The Russians said it couldn't be true. Then 12 days later, they shot down another one. So far, they've reportedly shot down six of these supposedly unstoppable missiles. On June 23rd, the mercenary organization known as the Wagner Group, led by um, uh, Prigozhin, openly rebelled. He told Russian people what most of them already knew. The war in Ukraine was not a defense of Russia, nor was it done to remove the Nazi influence in Ukraine. Wagner troops left their positions in Ukraine and marched toward Moscow. They moved like a hot knife through butter, defeating Russian defenses. A day later, only 124 miles from Moscow, they stopped, and the reasons remain unclear. Some say that the secret police threatened the families of the Wagner leaders. Putin at first promised to punish members of the organization for treason to get them to stop the march, but then he also promised them amnesty. Worse yet, as they marched toward Moscow, he and his cronies fled the capital. How can a man who has long projected an air of machismo and strength live that down? When the going got dangerous, he skedaddled. The air of invincibility he once projected has been destroyed, and that puts the world in grave danger. And Hal Lindsey goes on to say, I don't pretend to know what will happen over the next few weeks, but it's good to know that, as always, we remain in God's hands Amen to that. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, the nuclear threat is ever with us, apparently. Got a couple more that I want to do before, and they're leading up to, I'm going to tease the second half. They're leading up to what I want to talk about in the second half, and that is feminism. And Crash asked me, is that still around? I said, yep, it's still around. So we're going to talk about the history of it and what it means for us today. But these last couple of headlines... Uh, Planned Parenthood worker, uh, uh, Planned Parenthood worker warns kids claiming trans identity are being used as cash cows. A Planned Parenthood employee is speaking out against the organization's practices of dispensing cross-sex hormones to trans-identifying teenagers, particularly distressed girls. The staffer who spoke on condition of anonymity recounted an interview with journalist Abigail Schreier 
how she felt morally conflicted about the volume of young people coming into the clinic claiming a transgender identity and yet showed signs of emotional and mental health issues. She also expressed great concern over the speed at which they were being prescribed hormones such as testosterone. The young clients were prescribed hormones with almost no examination of their underlying problems and medical oversight was practically non-existent, the staffer alleged. The Planned Parenthood employee who said she's fully supportive of abortion rights noted that abortions were the bread and butter for clinics, but now trans-identifying kids are cash cows. They're kept on the hook for the foreseeable future in terms of follow-up appointments, blood work, meetings, etc., whereas abortions are a one-and-done situation. Boy, that's as cold as it gets, isn't it? Schreier is a Wall Street Journal op-ed contributor and author of the book Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters an investigative work released last year that examines why, for the first time in approximately 100 years of diagnostic history, the vast majority of young people diagnosed with gender dysphoria are girls. Until recently, this extremely rare condition was almost exclusively seen in young boys. So now the abortion provider is clearly in the business of dispensing cross-sex hormones, and um, it's not really a surprise, but... It's very destructive. The culture of death's chief proponent, Planned Parenthood, has no problem putting profits over people, says the director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Um, The abortion giant recognized if they can get a teenager to start hormones, they will keep coming back to their clinic, and the business will grow. That's just sick. Another uh, article of interest to the gals is... um, Black Southern Baptist churches challenge denominations vote to ban women in leadership. So there's another group now that's talking about what's the SBC going to do about female pastors because Rick Warren, as you may recall, was taken out of the SBC because they have a female pastor. The National African American Fellowship, a network of more than 4,000 predominantly African American churches affiliated with the SBC, believes a recent vote by SBC messengers in favor of banning women from serving as pastor of any kind is an unnecessary infringement upon the autonomy of the local church that will impact their congregations. In July 3rd letter to SBC President Bart Barber, NAAF President Gregory Perkins, who leads a church in Menifee, where at least one woman holds the title of pastor, urged leaders of America's largest Protestant denomination to pray about the recent move that led to disfellowship, disfellowship Bing, Rick Warren's Saddleback Church. We strong, quote, we strongly urge our SBC family to consider entering a time of prayer and dialogue because for many, this most recent decision is an infringement upon autonomy. Okay, he says, um, a proposed amendment to the SBC Constitution can, uh, clarifying that women cannot serve as pastors passed with 80% of the vote from 12,000 messengers. And part of what they were saying that they didn't like is... Um, In the South, he says, many of our churches assign the title pastor to women who oversee ministries under the authority of a male senior pastor, children's pastor, worship pastor, discipleship pastor, etc. He says, to disfellop like-minded churches who share our faith in Jesus and our belief in the authority of Scripture, our mandate to carry out the Great Commission, and our agreement to give cooperatively based on a local church governance decision dishonors the spirit of cooperation. So there's... There's, it's still going on. That is still going on because of it being controversial. It is a hot-button issue. And the final one before the break here that has to do with what I'm going to talk about in the second half, 
Transgender woman winning Miss Netherlands sparks furor. Simply evil. On Saturday, Ricky Cole became the first transgender woman to win the Miss Netherlands competition, but her victory is being overshadowed by online backlash. After officially being crowned Miss Netherlands, Cole is now qualified for the international contest Miss Universe, where she will be the second transgender woman ever to compete. The 22-year-old shared her delight with her followers on social media hours after she received her crown, but people disagreeing with her participation flooded the comments section on her Instagram. The reaction reflects a global cultural debate at a time when transgender inclusion is proving to be a polarizing issue. Definitely. And the comments are very interesting. Um, Most of them were like this. Yes, you did it. You stole victory from a real woman, wrote one woman. Another, we've had enough of this baloney. She didn't say baloney, but I'm not going to say what she said. You stole this title from real women. You have absolutely nothing to be proud of. Another said, this is simply evil. And then a man weighed in and he said, this is just proof that men are better at everything, including being a woman. Well, this is nothing to celebrate. And one woman said, it's a slap in the face to every single woman who competed against this biological male in a competition designed specifically for women. The end. Yeah, that's not a hot-button issue, is it? So I'm going to talk about feminism in the next half. Um, You know, remember uh, to visit Stand for the Truth and sign up for our weekly podcast digest via your email inbox. On the top menu bar, click the subscribe link. Enter your first name and email address. Feedback is also encouraged at comments at standupforthetruth.com. I'm interested in what you have to say today, so drop us a line. Be right back. Your prayers and ongoing financial support keep our Truth at Any Cost mission strong. Standupforthetruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth today. My name is Mary Danielson. Talking about some headlines, and in particular, uh, the last portion of our first segment had to do with some sort of hot-button issues, um, transgenderism, the war on women, basically, Planned Parenthood, um, making a lot of money off of uh, vulnerable young women who are questioning their gender. And it's just such an ugly situation, especially now, um, not that I really care about beauty pageants. I never really have. But now the politics has entered the fray. Transgender, well, a man won Miss Netherlands. And um, (laughs) so I want to look at the gender wars for a few minutes. I want to look at feminism. And these gender wars are as old as time, right? But they have never looked like they do today. It's different. What is it? Um, And why is it such a hot-button issue? Women in the pulpit, it's a hot-button issue. It really causes people to... Well, they need to be sure they know what the Bible says and what they believe. But the gender wars. Now, men claiming not to understand women, women unhappy about their lot in life, blaming men for it all. Back in Genesis, the man blamed the woman. Well, there's plenty of blame to go around, unfortunately, because every human is a sinner. If you find the perfect spouse, come and see me. And if you are the perfect spouse, well, that's another issue that you have there. And there's a, there's a, a meme floating around this week. It says something like, men want an instruction book about women. But the women say men don't read instructions anyway, so there's that. And the beat goes on. And it, it's supposed to be funny. And I, I think that, that, you know, at some point in life we can relate to that. 
But the fact that there's even a war on gender, not to mention purposeful cultural confusion about what makes a she a she and a he a he, is directly attributed to the fall of humans, a kerfuffle of sorts that started with the first two he's and she's that ever lived. What is feminism and what isn't feminism? And it's interesting that Crash asked me, is there still such a thing as feminism? Well, it, it, there definitely is. Is it about voting? Is it about a cubicle in the workplace, a corner office, an expense account? Is it about ability? Is it about intellect? Is it about assertiveness or personality? Well, it's, it's about none of those things, broadly speaking. To say that 50% of the population is too mentally challenged to pick a president or inherit land or be an administrator, or doctor, lawyer, or own a business, of course, is short-sighted. We all know that that is false. Women do constitute a large portion of the world's brain trust, and if all the women dropped out of the marketplace, the workplace today, or stopped contributing to the culture, imagine how many jobs would go undone in the world. Jobs that women are capable of doing well, and much needed in a world of billions of inhabitants. And our world is so different. It's far more complex than it was even a generation ago. We have uh, economic issues, inflationary issues, where um, the dollar doesn't go anywhere anymore and families uh, need that income. So, it's, again, it is complicated. And I think the average person would probably say that feminism is all about being equal to men on any level that we choose. At least it started out that way, right? The mantra that we've heard for decades and continue to hear, actually, in social propaganda aimed at young girls is, you can be anything you want. Now, who would be opposed to that on a basic achievement level? Um, we're expected to believe from such promotional materials that you know brave, enlightened women are fighting on behalf of the sisterhood around the world, and they're fighting on behalf of our youth. Well, they are not doing any such thing, and no one can be anything they want because life doesn't work that way. Again, complications. But isn't the definition of equal equally important here? Does it mean same? Does it mean different with a side of entitlement? Or what exactly? And these are questions that I think need to be answered biblically. Now, early feminism was tied up with, um, number one, the right to vote, Number two, the temperance movement, and that was alcohol, public use of alcohol, public drunkenness, and something called prohibition back in the 1920s. That was 100 years ago. And number three, the abolitionist movement, and that had to do with slavery. Women headed up all these movements. Uh, they wanted to impose a certain morality on society. Now, you got to remember at that time, a large percentage of people went to church. They owned Bibles, and they still respected the Judeo-Christian worldview. Some people might say men were men and women were women. Well, the thinking at that time was that legislating morality, um, you know, through prohibition, et cetera, would clean up a morally trashed world. Um, but actually, it had the opposite effect in creating more alcoholism and making a bigger mess of society because the law makes people do the opposite of what they should. So for this biblical reason, imposing morality on society is a guaranteed fail. But their hearts were in the right place. But this doesn't constitute world-changing feminism either, and that was yet to come. About 100 years ago, a woman named Margaret Sanger took her politically progressive ideas and applied them to reproductive rights for women. She started what would become Planned Parenthood and spent her life crusading for publicly available birth control, which was not to be spoken of in public at that time 100 years ago, let alone in pamphlet form due to obscenity laws. And then, of course, she advocated for abortion. Along comes the baby boomer generation. 
At, time, at a time when men returned from the war, couples were anxious to marry and start families. So this was the beginning of the contemporary era of what we would call the suburban housewife, complete with, you know, dinner around the television and frozen meals. And that gave the Cold War family time to take some vacations uh, and get some time-saving appliances. And it was seemingly a happy time, and it really was for many, a very different time, and a secure environment for raising children. It was It was really a traditional home for a lot of us. Not everyone, but a lot of us. And if, if you, here's the thing, if you could sit down and take time to compare media of the time, Okay, so compare innocent TV themes from the 50s and 60s, Leave it to Beaver, etc., to the Norman Lear single-parent toxicity of the 70s. You would see, strikingly, how suddenly thematic feminism became as though a switch was flipped. And by Norman Lear, I'm, for those of you who aren't as old as some of us, all in the family, Maud, One Day at a Time, and other progressive, uh, politically charged programs like those, and a lot of us were teens then, so feminists were targeting boomer moms and young women all at once. And this conditioning has been both subtle and relentless for at least two full generations, actually three. As shocking as it was at the time, the average female could not do anything about it and really, you know, didn't care to do anything about it. They felt it was very empowering. And today we find that uh, most Television comedies, and I use that term loosely, present a bumbling dad who manages to mess everything up like a teenager until, oh, the woman steps in and fixes it all within 22 minutes plus commercials. It is terribly offensive, and it should be, uh, a society that portrays its men as juvenile frat boys. Now, personalities that rose to the top in the feminist uh, genre in that area include Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan. She's the author of what they call the Feminist Bible. It's not a Bible at all, but it's entitled The Feminine Mystique, 1963. Uh, she's credited with uh, sparking the late 20th century wave. <coughs> Excuse me. Friedan was Jewish, and she had a Marxist worldview. Excuse me. Tickle. Okay, take a, take a <laughs> breath. <laughs> Got it. Tickle. I, I wanted, uh, uh, when you were talking about TV shows, I don't know if you know this, Mary. Mary is a Star Trek fan, just like I am. On the pilot episode, The Cage, when Gene Roddenberry had his wife as second in command, mm -hmm. they got a lot of flack about really? that. They're oh. going, who does she think she is? And even talked about, the character talked about, I, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just not used to having a woman on the bridge. Wow. So even back in, the, oh. and, and The Cage came out in 1964. Mm -hmm. So you think about how they were just trying, TV was trying to sneak those things in, especially wow. somebody as uh, Roddenberry. You yeah. Know. Yeah, very interesting. No, oh, I just want to throw that in while you yeah. took a drink and get your get your breath I'm back. I'm hoping that tickle does not return. <laughs> All right. All right. Then in 1971, um, now we have the perceived rights of lesbians and legal rights of lesbian mothers became part of today's feminists. They were invited at that time to be an active part of the NOW, the National, or the National Organization for Women, which was established in 1966. So feminism and anger have been building to a crescendo since right around 1973. And I think uh, those listening know that that was the year we descended into one of the darkest moments in human history, the day it became legal to murder one's own child in the great USA. Abortion and feminism are now one cause with a side of alternative lifestyles, gender disenchantment, Reproductive justice, the my body, my choice lies, are from the pit 
Because that baby is clearly a separate body, and reproductive rights ends when the woman conceives that child. Women are treated in humane, in, in, inhumane ways under false teachings. And of course, Islam comes to mind yet there. But where are the Western feminists? Well, they're busy with their self-worship and their own agenda. It's not about justice for anyone else with them. It never has been. So just in case you're curious as to why the occasional marching and protesting feminists haven't accomplished anything of value for anyone. Jesus came to set everyone free, male and female, slave, Jew, Gentile. Christianity is the one belief system that sets everyone free. Not selfish, murderous political movements. Aborting uh, one's own child does not set you free. I mean, what kind of sick thinking gets a culture to this point? Now, as for whether women are equal to men, what's the question? There is no issue. It's about being different, which is not the same by any stretch. Women are complementary, designed by God to do the things that men are not designed to do. It's not about can or can't. That's sort of a juvenile skirmish, you know, that just sort of feeds the flesh. Yes, I throw like a girl. But competition between the sexes is just not necessary because of what the Bible teaches. And competition aimed at women from those who delusionally say they are now a woman is a special kind, I think, of cowardly aberration that I sure, I sure didn't see coming. I have different strengths and abilities than my husband. I think differently. I react differently. I speak differently. I approach every relationship differently. Does this imply inequality? Well, of course it doesn't. I don't want to be a man. I don't want men to be like women or say they're women. It makes me squeamish. As a woman, I'm offended by the notion that we need to homogenize the genders because then why should I even desire to be excellent at anything? Women are made in God's image and by nature. They are the gentler sex, the nurturers. They're creative in their own ways and means. So what makes an excellent husband or brother? What makes an excellent wife or sister? Well, read the New Testament. But it's completely different lists, and I like that. There's an old saying, take this for what it's worth, whatever you give a woman, she will make greater. If you give her DNA, she'll give you a baby. If you give her a house, she'll make you a home. If you give her groceries, she'll give you a meal. If you give her a smile, she'll give, give you her heart. We really do want to be the best mates we can. Everyone I know feels that way. We need space to learn that, just as men need room to learn to love their wives and be the spiritual head of their home. It's not intuitive. It goes against the flesh. We're selfish uh, sinners with our own motives, and we're different. Marriage is two polar opposite humans agreeing to live together for the rest of their lives. And God designed it, and he has a reason to design it. And we need to honor that and honor one another. Now, when comparing equality versus different or unique, then there's one very telling way that women show they don't understand this concept. And now I'm going to get in hot water. That concept is women pastors. When women become leaders in the church, taking a position of authority over men because they believe they have the same gifts and therefore deserve an equal opportunity, they show they don't understand the difference between callings and giftings, between authority and submission, equal versus unique, and the picture of Christ and the church. It's faulty reasoning. And it's not that women are the only ones deceived. Yes, women were deceived first. Men can teach false teaching, and they do. But that's not the issue at all. The Bible is clear that she is not to be in an authority position in a pulpit, 1 Timothy 2.12. It's not ambiguous in the scriptures at all. Here's some good examples 
of how God views women in the scriptures. One, women will inherit the kingdom, all who have repented and trusted in the finished work of Christ. That's the best news. Women are forgiven of their sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness upon repentance. Women are sealed with the Holy Spirit and given spiritual gifts, thus able to understand scripture, apply it to their lives and the local body in the proper order. Women are healed of physical disease. Women were involved in Jesus' ministry. They were prophetesses. Women were the first at the tomb of the risen Christ. Women ministered in the early church and still do today. So, can women really be anything they want? (laughs) Well, as long as they don't pattern themselves after the world, but after a far higher calling of a woman in Christ, of excellence, wherever God has called us. From that perspective, we can be anything. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be loving, kind, peaceful, encouraging, honest, tenderhearted, and a long list of things that will set us apart from the world and fulfill that calling of excellence. And there we will find true freedom indeed. So praise the Lord, gals, men, if you're called, do what God's called you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a few more headlines, I think. Um, completely switching gears now here, Anya. Gatestone Institute tells us, uh, this is from July 10th, Iran's plan to drive the Jews out of quote-unquote Palestine. It's Israel. Iran's mullahs are seeking to create a situation where Jews no longer feel safe in their own country and are forced to leave Israel. To achieve this goal, the mullahs have instructed their Palestinian terror proxies, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or P-I-J, Jihad, to step up their campaign of terrorism against the Jews. Now, there are 8 million Jews. Okay, so when I read this, remember, there are 8 million Jews now in Israel. Islamic Jihad and other Palestinian resistance movements have found the main key to fighting the Zionist regime. The continually growing authority of resistance groups in the West Bank is the key to bringing the Zionist enemy to its knees and must continue. The leaders of Iran, Hamas, and PIJ share the same goal, eliminating Israel, killing as many Jews as possible. They do not differentiate between a Jew living in Israel and a Jew in the West Bank. In their view, all Jews are settlers regardless of where they live, so there's no difference between Tel Aviv and a Jewish settlement in the West Bank. They see Israel as one big settlement that must be removed from the face of the earth goes on to say the Jews in other countries live in peace and prosperity. The only place where they're being killed is in Palestine. Therefore, when we continue our fight, they will change their mind. They will realize they made a historical mistake by coming to this place. They'll realize there's no chance of life for them, and they are the, therefore they should leave this country. This statement made by the PIJ leader is important because it shows that the Palestinian terror attacks against Israel are not being carried out because of checkpoints, settlements, harsh economic or living conditions. Instead, the purpose is to force the Jews out of their country and replace Israel with an Islamic state controlled by Iran and its proxies. And there's really nothing new here, but I find it nearly amusing when they say that that we're just going to get them all to leave when I know that I know that God would not allow that, and he has a different opinion on that. So big dreams for little people, (laughs) it is not going to happen because Israel is God's time clock, and the prophecy of them returning to the land is one of the greatest prophecies in modern times, 1948. 
All right. Um, we talk about COVID here. This is a very interesting article. It's called, After Long Silence on Long Vax, Science Magazine li- Links Autoimmune Disorders to COVID Shots. So we had long COVID, which can include loss of taste or smell or other issues way after you've recovered. Now there's something called Long Vax. And this is on um, Children's Health Defense uh, page, which I read regularly. Mainstream publications and regulatory agencies have buckled to public pressure to admit the COVID-19 vax can cause injuries such as myocarditis and pericarditis, but until recently they've published little or nothing about the substantial number of people suffering from autoimmune disease after vaccination. However, on Tuesday, the journal Science published an article confirming that COVID-19 vaccines are linked to autoimmune disorders such as small fiber neuropathy and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is, among other things, a fast, very rapid heartbeat. It says, we've been screaming from the top of our lungs about these things happening. Agnieszka Wilson, founder of hashtag Can We Talk About It, told the defender. And finally, slowly, it's being acknowledged. Hashtag Can We Talk About It campaign is a global effort to break the silence around injuries from the vaccine. Susan Newell, former board member of the Vaccine Injured Patient Advocacy Group React 19, told the Defender, I'm extremely grateful that doctors and medical institutions are now willing to talk about adverse reactions. They should have been listening to the injured. We even have injured medical professionals among the injured, who have had trouble being heard. Science reported that in addition to abnormal blood clotting and heart inflammation, the mRNA vaccines give rise to another apparent complication. This debilitating suite of symptoms that resembles long COVID has been more elusive. It's linked to vaccination unclear, and diagnostic features are ill-defined. But in recent months, what some call long vax has gained wider acceptance among doctors and scientists and some are now working some are now working to better understand and treat its symptoms according to science magazine long vax cases seem very rare okay so they blew it right away <laughs> uh so this is their way out of this i guess they include a wide range of symptoms like persistent headaches severe fatigue abnormal heart rate and blood pressure they can appear within hours or weeks after vaccination are difficult to study science reported that increasing numbers of researchers are making diagnoses that includes um small fiber sensory neuropathy, which causes tingling or electric shock-like sensations, burning pain, blood circulation problems, blood flow, lightheadedness, fainting, etc., etc. Post-vax symptoms could could have features of one or both conditions. Um, Also, these are part of the Gardasil vaccine. These are side effects of that, and I know there's been a lot of controversy about that. Commenting on the article, Substacker Igor Chudov wrote that the authors acknowledge the suffering but also minimize it, falsely asserting that it's rare. And it keeps going on about how rare these injuries are. But Brianne Dreesen, founder of React19, said that despite the fact the article qualifies some of its claims, she sees it as an important step towards getting these conditions more widely recognized. Uh, and it ends with uh, scientists at the NIH were attempting to study and treat patients with long vax as far back as 2021. They published a preprint report on their work, but the study was abruptly halted without explanation 
and the NIH has stonewalled attempts to discover details about what the agency knew and when they knew it, of course. So the beat goes on with that, too. Um, I'm amazed at the variance of symptoms in people um, at this stage, and it's a little scary to think um, that there's more that has yet to be discovered. Uh, in Peru, they're finding that a huge number of people who were got the jab have Guillain-Barre syndrome, which includes some paralysis, et cetera. So, ugh. Also, I uh, have a few minutes left here. Um, Jeff Childers of Coffee and COVID, who is just a brilliant commentator. He says, an eye-popping new study published in May in the journal Nature titled Risk Assessment of Retinal Vascular Occlusion After the Jab. Retinal vascular occlusion occurs when a blood vessel in the retina, the light-sensitive issue at the back of the eye, becomes blocked. It's a tiny blood clot in your eye. In serious cases, it leads to vision loss or blindness. In mild cases, patients have floaters, blurred vision, light flashes, or eye pain. The researchers found a stark link between retinal occlusion and the safe and effective, quote-unquote, jabs. It says individuals with COVID-19 vaccination at a higher risk of all forms of retinal vascular occlusion. The cumulative incidence of retinal of that (laughs) was significantly higher in the vaccinated compared to unvaccinated two years and 12 weeks after vaccination. The risk of it significantly increased during the first two weeks after the vaccination and persisted for at least 12 weeks. Additionally, individuals with first and second dose MRNA-1273 had a significantly increased risk for two years. Wow. It's like a time bomb, right? A lot of these symptoms are just like a time bomb in your in your system. The researchers noted that although vaccination greatly increased the risk, the researchers said it's still very small. But Jeff says, as I see it, the bigger problem is how many of these rare but disabling side effects does it take before a serious adverse event of some kind is not rare? Um, and he talks about a friend. Uh, well, heck, he's a lawyer. Jeff Childers is a lawyer. He says, you'll recall last week I learned opposing counsel in one of my cases suddenly went blind while driving. And totally coincidental. How about this article from Canadian News? Could climate affect our eyes? So let's just do the smoke and mirrors thing. Let's just divert. Could climate affect our eyes? Canadian study finds higher temperatures linked with vision impairment. Oh, dear. Science, he says, I'm sure CTV's temperature blindness now comes as a terrific surprise to everyone who lives in hot climates but can see just fine. Also, and this one, this is a very, this is a terrifying one. Um, It's a skin condition that causes the top layer of skin to die and slough off and uh, also affects mucous membranes. Um, Toxic epidermal necrolysis. This is where your skin actually comes off. So, I don't know. Of course, that's not good news, and it's discouraging, but this is the world we live in. We live in very perilous times, and um, we need to trust the Lord more and more with everything, every single thing that comes our way. All right, time to wrap up another podcast. Go forth and walk with Jesus today. Share your faith, the hope that is in you, with someone. Tomorrow, we have Chris Quintana. Eric Barger is on Tuesday. We're going to talk about inductive Bible study on Thursday with Ruth Ruth Christian. That should be a great time with Ruth, good friend of mine. So, like I said, go forth and walk with Jesus. 
um, testify of your faith and the hope that is in you. And therefore, my beloved, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.